Christendom College would like to welcome you to the 21st Annual Summer Institute entitled Dignitatis Humanae, Catholic Teaching on Bioethics. This conference was held on July 9, 2011 in the St. Lawrence Commons at Christendom College's Front Royal Virginia campus. We now begin the presentation. I gave my last uh, limina, which was with Blessed John Paul the Great. At the end of my private appointment, we were both going directly to the meeting of all the bishops in my region from the United States, and the Holy Father was going to give us a final allocution. The Holy Father was very feeble, so we had been sitting at his desk, and they brought in that cart. You remember the cart with which he used to move around and come into the audience hall and come into the basilica? They brought that cart in. The Holy Father always had a marvelous sense of humor, John Paul, as does our Holy Father, Pope Benedict. So I thought, well, we had had a nice conversation. Why not? So I went over to him and I said, Holy Father, do you think I can hitch a ride with you? <laughs> over to the meeting of all the bishops. And he chuckled and he smiled broadly and he looked me up and down and said, no, too fat. I guess I was going to weigh that card down. <laughs> so here I stand, having been proclaimed too fat <laughs> by a soon-to-be saint of the church. <laughs> and so that one will stick. But we can look at it in a more flattering way that I am probably a limitless source of stem cells. <laughs> now we're all awake. <laughs> After my long and extensive Jesuit training, it should come as no surprise that I have three points. <laughs> the first point is God and the natural law. The second point, and I hope many of you are familiar with this term, is the hermeneutic of rupture and the natural law. And the last point is the natural law and end-of-life decisions. So there we are. First point, God and the natural law. I bring this up because St. Thomas Aquinas believed that knowledge of the existence of God by 
reason alone, that is, by that metaphysical nature that Dr. Smith mentioned, by that metaphysical nature that we are endowed with as human beings, and from which comes the term natural law, the metaphysical law of our nature. It is natural for us, by reason alone, to know the existence of God. Now myself, I would be willing to take St. Thomas Aquinas' word for it, but it was also one of the canons of Vatican I. Now Vatican I is pre-Vatican II. <laughs> but please don't count that against Vatican I. Vatican I defined that it is possible to know the existence of God from reason alone. And somehow we get into discussions of natural law regularly. We invoke the natural law. We bemoan the fact that our country and our culture don't follow the natural law. But somehow mention of God doesn't come up. It's almost as though we're more ecumenical or more acceptable to a secular environment if we leave God out of it. And indeed there, were some, there are some philosophers who believe very strongly that it's better to consider the natural law apart from God. However, the moral good, according to the mind of Aquinas, according to the mind of the councils of the church, and therefore according to my mind, the moral good is obedience to God's will. So morality without God is not even very close, and it's certainly no cigar, morality without God. It doesn't work. We can know of the existence of God from reason alone, and since we can know of God's existence from reason alone, then the moral good becomes obedience to God's law. Now, to know the existence of God from reason alone is good, but it's not enough. It's not enough. That's where we get into the distinction that Dr. Smith was making between the very objective order and the order of commitment, the order of more subjectivity. The existence of God can be known from reason alone, but in order to draw the commitment, we need witness. 
to the existence of God. We need people living in ways that make no sense if God did not exist. And that's why, brothers and sisters, if the church ever needed the witness of celibacy, it needs it today. <laughs> because a celibate life lived joyfully for the sake of the kingdom is the very best witness proof for the existence of God, if you will. The celibate is somebody that not only knows the existence of God from reason, but know who God knows who God is. God has revealed himself to the celibate. And God has filled the celibate with a love so deep that the celibate can say, I've had enough of love and intimacy. And the celibate can take that love and intimacy with God, with Christ, of which he is full, and go out and share it lavishly with the dear people of God. So we need the knowledge of God from reason alone. We need that proof. But we also need the proof of lived witness, the highest of which is the proof of joyfully lived out celibacy. And for that, we have to thank in a special way brother priests, but in a special way all the sisters who really live their celibate lives with joy and they help me to believe every day that God exists and that he's in charge of the whole world, including my life. So thank you very much, sisters. Thank you. Now, how do we know the existence of God from reason alone? The argument that is most convincing is not among the five ways of Thomas Aquinas, the five proofs. They're fine, they help us. But the argument that's the strongest is the argument in his De Ante et Essentia. And if you really want the source, that's where it is. And to put that argument in contemporary terms, it goes like this. Don't try to wrap your mind around it all at once. You've got to think about it. But one has to make a choice that life, the world, makes sense. We really have to. There are people that run around saying the world is absurd. But hopefully they still take a shower in the morning. And if life were really absurd, they wouldn't do that. There are also people that don't take a shower every morning who think that the world makes sense. So we got to help them along. <laughs> you 
have to believe that life makes sense. And what does that mean, that life makes sense? It means that whatever happens in the world has an explanation. And it means that the whole world has an explanation. Makes sense. If the whole world has an explanation, then we cannot be simply left with a chain of events. A explains B, B explains C, C explains D. Where would all that end? Where would all that end? Or take it in reverse. B is explained by A and on and on and on. If that goes into infinity, the world doesn't have an explanation. The explanation trails off into infinity and is, in the end, absurd. So if life makes sense, if the world makes sense, there has to be a stop of that explanatory chain. There has to be a final source of meaning. There has to be an unexplained explainer. An explainer himself who requires no explanation because his very essence is to exist. He is to be. And that is the one that we call God. Now, if you feel like you want to take gas and pray for a happy death, trying to wrap your mind around that, don't. Just sit with it for a while. I'm not going to belabor it here, as I want to keep an eye on the clock. But, if God, if the existence of God can be known by reason alone, then that is actually the start of the natural law. Okay, that's the first point. The second point, the natural law and the hermeneutic of rupture. How many have ever heard that term, hermeneutic of rupture? Right. It's not like Wheaties. It's not like Wheaties. And, uh, but it is, if you'll forgive me, an exceptionally unpleasant sort of hernia. The hermeneutic of rupture. That means that in the flow of history, there is no continuity but rather there are breaks, ruptures. And after the break, everything is different. Our Holy Father Pope Benedict has been using that term hermeneutic of rupture a lot to understand what happened after the Second Vatican Council. The Second Vatican Council was taken to be a complete break with the past. To call something pre-Vatican II was to call it bad, archaic, obsolete, retro.
sometimes when I say to people, could you receive the Eucharist, please, more reverently, they say, oh, you're just retro, you're pre-Vatican too." Pre-Vatican II is not a compliment in life. And the Holy Father, Pope Benedict, has said that a misinterpretation took deep root, a misinterpretation of Vatican II, which saw what came before Vatican II as to be avoided and maybe even harmful. He sees that kind of a hermeneutic of rupture itself to be very harmful to the Holy Spirit's continuous presence to the church, the Holy Spirit's continuous action in the church through history. So there has been a hermeneutic with rupture in terms of the interpretation of the documents of Vatican II, and we suffer severely from it. There has also been a hermeneutic of rupture in the development of the understanding of the natural law precisely because of the effort to understand the natural law apart from God. There's a whole school of philosophers that would prefer to do it that way. Very reputable people. They have no ill agenda in mind. Very reputable, they just want the truth. But this is not helpful if you're reading about the natural law, and I would hope you would. And there's a statement made that this is an attempt to understand and articulate the natural law apart from God, then you're probably not making the best use of your time as disciples of Jesus Christ a philosopher in graduate school might well take a close look at that. But if what we're interested in is being a disciple of Jesus Christ, maybe we can use our time better. Because God grounds the natural law. God is the unexplained explainer. If there is no unexplained explainer, then there is no explanation of the natural law. And not only has a hermeneutic of rupture occurred with regard to the natural law, not only that, but in recent times, the time of the redefinition of marriage, the natural law has been deconstructed and made irrelevant. God's creative intention present in the whole world, visible by the light of reason, so that our will can be obedient to God's will, expressed through the natural law. That whole vision goes out the window, and we're left with a de deconstructed idea of natural law, which is whatever you think it is. We're back to that. I have my natural law and you have your natural law. I'll respect you and you respect me. Let's just not hurt each other. Let's keep talking and let's not hurt each other. 
That's a deconstructed culture. Keep talking and not hurt each other. That's a poor excuse for a full human life. So wherever we suspect that a hermeneutic of rupture is in place, we better be very, very careful. Especially with regard to the natural law, especially with regard to the teaching of the church, the doctrine and the discipline, and especially with regard to the liturgy. But that's not our topic today. I think most of you would see the hermeneutic of rupture most clearly, probably in what happened to the liturgy after Vatican II. And through the efforts of great people like Cardinal Lorenzo, were Cardinal Canizares, and especially our Holy Father Pope Benedict, we're getting our act together again. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But that's not the topic. The third point. Natural law and end-of-life decisions. Now, what are the elements of the natural law that govern end-of-life decision? First is the principle of the unrepeatable, irreducible, as Dr. Smith said, dignity of every human person. The dignity, the unsurpassed dignity of every human person. Second point, person who is a human person from conception until natural death. That's the span of the human person, from conception to natural death. So those are the first two elements. And the third element is simply what we're familiar with as the law of self-preservation. That we want to preserve ourselves and we want to preserve our species. And we want to educate ourselves, and we want to educate our species. So those are the three elements. Unrepeatable dignity of a human person, from conception until natural death, endowed with the deepest law of self-preservation in terms of self, the species, and all that self-preservation entails. So that's basically where the rubber of the natural law hits the road of end-of-life decisions. Now, the principles derived from the natural law and that govern end-of-life 
decisions are actually rather simple, but it's very easy to get derailed as we understand those principles. They're basically simple. First of all, non-futile means, means which are not useless, must be, must be used to preserve human life. Means that are not useless must be used. Every possible means that could be useful need not necessarily be used for the sake of the common good. Because as you look at individual cases, rarely are all possible means necessary to sustain life, all possible means. They have to be pinpointed depending on the individual. When the person is terminally ill and close to natural death, and this is where we have the problem, when the person is terminally ill and close to natural death, it is necessary to do what some call a benefits and burdens analysis. And this is the most important word here, a benefits and burdens analysis of treatment, of medical treatment. We are not called, in the case of a person who is terminally ill and close to natural death, we are not called to evaluate the quality of his or her life. We are not called to make the judgment that this life is still worth living or it's not. That's not the question. And this is where moral decision-making and end-of-life issues gets fudged up. That person has a life that's no longer worth living. Let us take him or her out of their misery. So-called mercy killing. When we start to evaluate the quality of somebody else's life, That means we're asking them to pull up the hearse. Get the hearse ready. So often, people want to die because as they see what's going on around them, they see everybody is rather anxious for the hearse and they figure maybe I better get out of everybody's way. I don't want to be a burden. If every human person has irreducible, unrepeatable human dignity, then no human life could ever be a burden. 
And again, this is where the subjective element, both of the patient and of the close family members, enters in. Are the family and is the physician acknowledging the unrepeatable worth and dignity of that person in any recommendations that are made? Is that person never being treated as a burden? Is the person never felt, never made to feel as though he or she is a burden? Because old people who are terminally ill and close to death are full of love, and they'll be the first ones to say, if the best thing for me to do is get out of everybody's way, let's do it. I don't want to be a burden. Why do they feel like a burden? Well, because of what they see. Everybody is telling them how wonderful they are and how precious they are, but that's not the action that's going on. You know, the sick person might hear somebody whisper, what's the number of that funeral director? <laughs> you are so precious, Nellie, we love you. Those kind of things happens. happen. It also happens that sometimes close family members really do not realize the status of the person who is terminally ill and close to natural death. They don't understand it. I regularly have problems when priests who are ministering to families in this situation are misinformed by the family who themselves are misinformed about what the situation is. For example, sometimes someone is so sick, for instance with liver cancer, that they haven't been able to process food, nutrition and hydration. They haven't been able to process it for days. And the family is not clear about that. And so the priest is not clear about that. And so everybody's saying Catholics don't allow the withdrawal of nutrition and hydration. That is true, unless nutrition and hydration are futile, unless they are worthless, unless the people person is so sick that they don't work. They don't accomplish any life-sustaining purpose. So, the idea is that if a person has hope of recovery, then take every truly necessary means, but not necessarily every means, to preserve life. Get the person healed up. If the person is terminally ill and close to natural death, weigh the benefits and the burdens. Sometimes it will happen when a person is terminally ill and close to death that when they use the gastronasal tube for feeding, the person is so uncomfortable that he or she will pull out the nasogastric tube. And if they reinsert it, 
the patient will try to pull it out again. The only way to keep it in that person who is terminally close to natural death is to tie the person down. That's where it gets to be too burdensome in that case. But the other thing that has to be kept in mind is that every case of a terminally ill, close to natural death person is unique. And somebody has got to get in there with the physicians and know the whole story. People will call me sometimes and they say, could you help us with a decision over the phone? I say, yes. The way I'm going to help you is we're going to find a local priest who can go and see the patient and talk to the doctor. I can't see the patient and I can't talk to the doctor and it's almost, it's not almost, it's dangerous for me to give advice under these circumstances. And I have to take the responsibility for the advice that I give. So let's get you a capable priest to visit with you, talk to the doctor. But if one can size up the true medical condition, whether or not nutrition and hydration are useful or futile. If they're useful, they must always be provided. If they're futile, not so. Somebody has to size all of that up and then do the benefits and burdens analysis with the family and with the physician. <clears throat> but it's ultimately the family's responsibility. The better they understand, the better things will be. And besides the specificity of this judgment about life-sustaining treatment in terminally ill and close to natural death people, there has to always be that concern that the person never is made to feel as a burden, never is treated as a burden. And that has to start long before that person becomes terminally ill and close to death. Because if they're treated like something of a burden for years, a lot of wisdom comes with old age. And they can see pretty clearly that they're singing a new tone now, and I wonder if it's right. I wonder if that's what they really believe. I'm experiencing this new tune. And people who live to a ripe old age also know what my granny always said so beautifully. She lived to be 96. She always said, Bobby, old age is not for sissies. <laughs> and I'm beginning to get a feel for that at <laughs> around 65, and I'm just at the beginning of it. But old people can take a lot. They can put up with a lot. They're seasoned. And what they need to experience is appreciation for all that they've done, but especially for who they are. Never a burden. And then 
the assessment has to be made as people look very carefully at the individual person and the individual circumstances and aspects. There are no generalizations. The assessments, once all the facts are known, are not that hard to make. It's the pastoral communication that's actually so difficult. If the person doesn't feel like a burden in anybody's eyes, and is not a burden in anybody's eyes, the pastoral approach to the communication of the truth is much easier. It's very hard to make a correct assessment if people are burdened with guilt and confusion and panic in a tough moment. So to prepare for decisions and assessments for the terminally ill and close to death person, the first thing to do is to appreciate them long before that moment arrives and to treasure them long before that moment arrives so that they needn't wonder what's going to happen to me and what do these people around me really have in mind. So, God and the natural law, the hermeneutic of rupture and the natural law, the natural law and end-of-life decisions. The principles can usually be applied without a great deal of fuss and confusion if all of the data is in, but that's at the objective level. The subjective level of the doctor, of the patient, and of the family is what needs attention here. And that situation has to be a situation where there is nothing but appreciation, nothing but love expressed for that person. Love in action and not only in words. When I see certain motion, I think maybe Maybe I'm finished, so. <laughs> I'll, be content to be, I'll be content to be finished. There is time for questions afterwards. But thanks so much for being here, for sacrificing your time. Thanks for listening to me, and praise be Jesus Christ. We hope that you have enjoyed this presentation. For more information about Christendom College, please call toll-free 800-877-5456 or go to www.christendom.edu. To obtain additional copies of this presentation, contact National Media Services at 540-635-4181 or visit www.nationalmediaservices.com. 
Unauthorized duplication of this product is prohibited.